Hello, Gabriel. How are you today? <laughs> I'm very good, Stefan. Thank you. How about you? I'm very, very good. Nice to have you here, my friend. You accepted the invitation. Uh, and to be honest, I'm not surprised you accepted. <laughs> you know me, I do like to give my opinion on things. I know you. <laughs> so welcome to The Better World. So The Better World is a podcast where we explore the world of software engineering leadership and the people who are shaping it. And you're definitely part of those people who are shaping it. So we've known each other for more than 10 years now. It's been a long time. I literally seen you start your former company called Wavo, which provides analytics for music professional, right? And when I say former, it's because you're no longer a CTO and part of the day-to-day -day operation after more than 10 years, but you still remain involved in the, the company. So we will talk about it later. But more than one of the really good engineers we have here in Montreal, you're also a serial entrepreneur. And as we say, it's not your first radio. You started your own consulting firm called Electron Libre, which means free electrons back in 2005. Uh, you've been a freelancer for almost six years before co-founding Wevo in 2011, of which you've been the CTO for almost 12 years. And more recently, in 2021, you decided you were ready for something new and you started PalTap, which mission is to make, I quote, knowledge and insights instantly accessible to increase humanity's collective wisdom. That's ambitious. I like it. And Thank you. Thank you. It's been quite a run so far. A lot ahead. But uh, yeah, I see that you've done your research. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of learning along the way. Excellent. So today we're going to dive into your fascinating journey of an engineer and entrepreneur. Tell me about your story from your days as a pretty young freelancer to now rolling up your sleeves again and starting a new business. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've always been super passionate by technology. It's really actually hard to know when I actually started to program or when I started to really build things by myself. Because I know I've always loved the imaginary world of like hackers and robots and, you know, all those electrons flying around. Usually when I tell the story, I say I started programming when I was 13 years old. But that's more of an age that I just picked because I had to. I, I couldn't remember exactly when I actually started. But that's more or less when my journey started. My father was actually working in technology himself. It was more of a like system administrator for big companies, but I'll, it, it always was close to me. So I, I grew up with a computer and yeah, I quickly went to like coding summer camp. I was, I was very privileged on that end. And, uh, you know, I remember I was like, I, I'm not super young and I'm not super old either, but I still was playing with Windows 3.3.1, right? Back then. So I, I, I still remember a little bit of those days and I've always been interested in programming, like in all visual basic when it landed and mm -hmm. even um, with like trying to program like some like remote control tools for machines back then, like the way the machines worked more than anything was of interest to me. So it was quite naturally that when I grew up a bit older and I was kind of looking for a job that it came to me that, hey, maybe, you know, all that computer stuff, we could actually do something with it. The way basically my entrepreneur journey started was by understanding that, yeah, I know some things, but I'm probably like not ready to go work for Microsoft, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's so, interesting. Yeah. So I was like, okay, so can I, what can I do to, to work in that field? Well, I've always been a big fan of fake it until you make it. 
And I remember around like 16 years old with my friend with whom I started Electronium back then. We were like, hey, like, let's just start a like IT consultancy. Like, let's get people to pay us for the questions they're going to ask of ourselves anyway. We got to be competitive in that market by just virtue of charging half of what everybody else was charging because basically we had no operating expenses back then. No rent, no nothing. That's how like Colin was born, essentially. I just want to dig into something you, you just said. You know, you said you were not ready for working at Microsoft. I think a lot of people would think that you're young, you, you know how to code. It's maybe easier to work for a company to start. Uh, rather than starting your own business, because starting your own business, you know, at a time where freelancing is definitely something popular, you know, it was not popular yeah. in 2005, it's popular now, but it was not popular in 2005. There's other problem, you know, building a company, even if it's a small company. And you decided to take this path instead of going to, to Microsoft and working at Microsoft. That's very interesting. Did you, did you, did you face other problems that were not software engineering related doing that? Yeah, I mean, there definitely were some challenges. I mean, obviously, um, and, and thank you for servicing that because I will agree, like now that you mentioned it, it probably was a way more complicated choice than just starting even as an intern for some. But honestly, for some reason, it, it felt so much more natural to me. So maybe that, that was a natural calling. I also wanted, always wanted a business too in the back of my mind. But another thing, maybe it is from my upbringing. My mom is actually an optometrist, but she works for herself okay. and she had, so it was kind of maybe a mix of, of my parents. So I really like should give kudos to her and my father for, for my career that I have now. Um, hi, if you're listening, mom and dad. Yeah. Um, you give, but, give some kudos to your mother too. She yeah, yeah, oh, that's it. She, she totally <laughs> deserves it. Um, but she's been a big inspiration. Definitely yeah. a very strong woman and, and her and her associate definitely were a big example in terms of um, how we started business. Actually, they were also some of our first clients uh, in terms of um, how we built an economy. But to go back to your question about definitely the, the challenges inherent to building a business, 100%. Like, they definitely, that there were ways that there's obviously like finding the clients, there's a biz day, there's obviously having to compete with other solutions, there's like managing your own capacity in terms mm -hmm. of like making sure that you don't take Oh, too much or too many clients. There's also working with your business partners. Definitely that took some work back then and selling yourself and aligning with your co-founders is something that came out of that experience. That's something that that was important. 100%, 100%, you know, on this kind of basic things, you know, like getting paid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe, yeah, going after your money, making sure you get paid as a consultant. Definitely that, that came up in a component that came up as well later as I continued kind of like on my own, because I still wanted to continue, basically, I wanted to do my computer science with Miguel. Uh, back then, my co-founder, him, in a colibri, and him wanted to just go full-time on that. I was not ready for that, so we basically, like, parted ways back then. But I still continued to keep on, like, taking clients, coding here and there, basically, until I almost finished my, my bachelor and kind of went on uh, to start Wable, which really came on as a very... Very good opportunity for a 20-something-year-old that I call correctly. I was more or less 21 when I started that. And we had the... Yeah, tell me about that. Tell me about this transition. So you were just, uh, I mean, like coming out 
from McGill University or just finishing your computer science studies, right? About, yeah. So to give you a bit of background back then, so so we know now Waverly is musical ethics for artists and big labels, right? Um, so it is a mix of music and technology. And back then, my passion was, well, music. I was a DJ back in those days. And I was also still very passionate about technology. So it came very natural when my co-founder, Connor Clark, who's still CEO of Weibo right now, came to me and said, hey, Gabe, I have this crazy idea. What if we took over the music industry by storm and really like made music as easy as we could to discover it? <laughs> and, and basically, we just started working on that. Even when we didn't know anything, we basically started to network as people around like, hey, like how does these things work? So we applied to like pretty much every incubator and accelerator that we could find. That was basically the hustle, Connor and I, that we were doing every night, 7 p.m. after school, have an Olympico coffee. Connor would work on applying to all of those accelerators. I was working on a prototype and just true persistent, we eventually managed to get into the first founder fuel cohort. And that was in 2011. But at, at that point, Connor and I were working on the Wavel for maybe, I would say, a year. Mm -hmm. And just seemed like a too good of an opportunity to pass. So basically, I took a semester off. Connor, I think, already graduated at that point. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of still on that semester off. We just got into founder fuel. We got some harsh feedback from the amazing folks at Real Ventures, uh, especially John Stokes, who's on our board, and he managed to get 220-something to convince them and show them how to raise money and build a company. So that's that's a short answer of like how Wavo was founded and how it came to be. That's really cool. And by the way, I, I remember those hard feedback because I was in the room <laughs> yeah. when you were receiving it from John. Yeah, I think the way I saw, like, and we interacted with John was something that feels like the team that's coming throughout talking to you right now to me is like, it felt very natural. We wanted feedback. We wanted to get the help. And definitely uh, John was like, trying enough to, to provide that among with the other folks at Real Ventures. And yeah, I really want to thank them for their support. Since those days, how did the, the product evolve? Thinking it was not analytics for music professional, right? It was really discovery, music discovery. So it's interesting because to me, it's always about music discovery. And that's one thing I know now, and I am able to articulate more than ever. It's really about its mission. Mm -hmm. It's really about your mission, your vision, and then choosing a product strategy that enables you to fulfill those. And so, yeah, Wave wanted to make music more discoverable. And it started as a social network. Back then, it was all the hype. I think it was all right that we were uh, trying to benefit on that hype because the technology or the moment really gives you a good why now. There is an interest from the consumers about a concept and applying a new concept to some age-old or new problems makes sense. And to us, and social network for music made a lot of sense. We had some good successes, but to a point we went to like hundreds of thousands of monthly active users. But I wasn't enough. The big platform, the Facebook, the Spotify were starting to come. That was at a time when Spotify, these are none of that was accessible from here in Canada, but they were still very much coming. 
And that's when we decided to kind of do our first pivot. It's interesting. We People talk a lot about pivots and we talk a lot about product market fit, but I think we should still talk more about, about it. For us, it really boiled down to figure out what works, figure out what does not, and double down on what works. And hmm. do that as often as you can. We were young founders. It took us a little to get there. Uh, but what we realized at some point was discovery for music was actually not a consumer problem. It was actually a problem of the industry. The industry wanted to get, get their product out there. They wanted to get their artists out there. And that's when we performed the first pivot uh, on the way to towards more a ad network for music. That worked for a little while until, well, we went to the, the same question where we asked ourselves, hey, what works when does not? Because at first it was more for all the artists um, and the industry. But what we realized that we want to build a platform for the music industry where it's easy for them to get a good grip on what advertising, which advertising works, what artists works, and and be able to make it profitable for these artists and to get, yeah, get, get, get more visibility, right? Yeah, essentially. Yeah, very interesting. But congrats for that. First of all, I mean, Wavo is typically the company I like because targeting a niche market, being extremely, extremely, like you said, trying to, I think that the word, the word pivot is well, way, way too much overused right now. <laughs> and I would say it's more about iteration, right? You've been able to iterate on what was working and you've been able to do that while raising very, very little money. And that's very, very impressive. That's that's the part that's very impressive, right? Thank you. Definitely, um, yeah. But this word use definitely, and because it's more like the exact job of the entrepreneur. Really, it's almost as if your job was to have this nebulous idea that either no shape or form, or rather a wide variety of shape or form, and the scope changes over time. And at some point, you're like, okay, that's that's what fits. That's what's worked. That's what you're responding, and progressively it's, it's kind of like with this blurry picture of you know where to go each pivot is actually making the final picture a little clearer to me now as a more seasoned entrepreneur i do come with my own set of hypotheses but each of those hypotheses i write them down into a list make them into a list of bets and every week michael Bonner and i with baltap are knocking those bets down each gives me some data points in that solution space that, that I'm mapping, essentially. That's like the way I see it. I'm like a cartographer of a market. And the product is essentially the treasure at the end of the exploration phase of that. You really try to find where, where are those gold nuggets of knowledge and understanding that will respond to your market's needs. 100%, 100%. So when did you become uh, with Wavo and analytics platform versus uh, ad platform? Uh, like four years ago or five years ago, something like this? Yeah, it started five years ago, but I could say that the ad network was essentially just really shut down or sunset, as we called it, I think two years ago or oh, okay. 2020. We really kind of kept it on for a long while, but essentially the, the main motivator was like, hey, all of those adds some other network to take the excess amount. And at some point that excess amount became the major part of our business. And you yeah. know, and you're like, yeah, network is great. But in terms of your top line revenue is bringing like yeah, so okay. little. So it was not so, necessarily that it was not compatible anymore to be an analytics platform and advertising platform, but it just one making was making way more sense financially wise, right? Well, 
yeah, it, it makes sense. Also, it wasn't compatible in the sense that even nowadays, Wayroll is about 100 people and focus right. is still very important. The, the way they choose projects, I'm not involved in the day-to-day anymore. I'm there as a board member and advisor, but focus is still as important as it was in the early days. And, and it's really in that, with that mindset that it wasn't compatible. There's a big difference between working to support and build the sort of two-sided marketplace where you you, mm-hmm. you have like your publishers and ad network versus the focusing fully on the analytics really. Because mm-hmm. we're still doing a lot of media buying. It's a need that our clients have and it's important we can help them spend their marketing dollars more efficiently. So we do provide both the execution and the measurement arm in terms mm-hmm. of like digital advertising. The Better Build is brought to you by Mission. Mission is an award-winning network of senior-level software engineers and product builders, backed by a platform that helps engineers continue to learn, grow, and connect. To get your team of fully managed, fully remote, and fully flexible software engineers, or to join our community, visit us at mission.dev. So 12 years, quite an adventure. Not so common to see someone stick to one company for so long, but you made it. I guess uh, a lot of grinding, right? Uh, you and Connor. So, I mean, kudos to that because, I mean, I know what it is. And so I guess uh, you had to grind a lot. Did you think at the time, you know, back in 2012 or back in 2010 that you would be spending the next 12 years, you know, at the same company? I would say no. I mean, I, did you ever really think that? I will always look on those 12 years very fondly, but also something that we it feels like three years to me. Yeah. It feels like... Uh, Even for me. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's, it's yesterday. It's interesting. So now you're, you're in 2021. Are you ready for a new chapter in your life? And you start uh, PalTap. Yeah, exactly. That's the name we're working with right now. So yeah, PalTap. It's super exciting business. Uh, I think mostly the, the, the importance of like a good mission, right? So we're looking at the from a different angle. We're looking at it from a B2C perspective, but also from a B2B perspective. Essentially, one area of interest right now from a B2B perspective is that essentially we know that workers spend 20% of their time looking for the answers that they need to do their job properly. We also mm-hmm. know that most of the fastest growing businesses use knowledge as part of their value creation process. And yet most organizations have a hard time to manage that. The vision that we have at Baltap is that we can better help people organize and find that information, all the while being able to better harvest that information such that companies can create more intellectual property, can create more information capital, but that can also work more efficiently. But that's the problem we're working with right now. Super interesting. Can you talk a bit about, since it's a podcast about uh, software engineering, maybe can you, because you started PalTap before the ChatGPT launch, can you talk about about your technology? You built your prototype, everything? One part I think that that's very relevant to understand about our investment thesis is that we really believe that the new AI models are like the new cloud. I really see OpenAI, Microsoft, Facebook models to some extent as being this new way of, uh, this new AWS. 
eventually we're going to see, and we aim to be this, and we aim to have Volta be this company, just like Dropbox was for AWS. Dropbox being a thin layer of fraud, a very important and profound product insight over Amazon S3. We can call those large language models, and we do work with them, but I prefer to call them foundational model mm -hmm. because they're really the bricks upon which you'll build the basis of your solution. But as an entrepreneur and as an investment team, I would say people should use them and think of them like that's called B2. You, you, the same way you don't I'm on-prem servers anymore, don't do your homegrown model until you really need to. And I think it's much more interesting right now to connect yourself or lock yourself in the speed of improvement of the ecosystem than to hope that you're going to be able to outspend Google and OpenAI. So you're basically building Paltap on the top of those existing GPT model or the other one, right? Yeah, 100%. Technology is a tool for me, but I'm fascinated by it. And we want to create magic for, for our customers. We want them to get the answers they need at the moment they need it. I want people to be able to build some knowledge in a natural way and be able to find it in a natural way and really like make things easy and more efficient. The same way that the steam machine made factories more efficient. And basically those are the steam machines. I have another question about this. How risky do you think it is as an entrepreneur to build on the top of someone else's stack and data set? A lot of startups that were built on the top of, let's say, Twitter API got shut down almost overnight when Twitter decided to restrain access or you know, to increase the pricing to access the API, you know? So what's your take on this as, as we're seeing a lot of young entrepreneurs getting super excited about the potential of uh, GPT in general? Supplier risk is the big thing that should always be on top of the CTOs and entrepreneurs. In the build or buy decision, you got to consider how risky it is that they're going to decide it's, it's not don't want us on there, like Twitter, that you're a competitor, again, Twitter, but sometimes they could also disappear. But on that very specific end, there's something very, very interesting that's happening in the AI space right now. And it's the emergence of those open source models. While some of them have, have been leaked, we know that the Facebook one has been leaked. Google is also emerging with some of their own models. An entrepreneur came to me and asked me, hey Gabe, I need a large language model or I need some kind of models, AI models to run my business. Should I build my own? Should I train them? And maybe I would say yes. Like do your own model if you know what you're doing, but I don't even I would say that. Now, when it comes to the supplier risk, if you asked me, I would say, well, you know, right now there is evidence that of two things. First off, that Google is going to emerge with their own offering in the market. I mean, they have to respond, but we also know that they've been doing research, but I have a very strong feeling and that's what they said that it's coming this year. So again, it does create a market. It's not only just OpenAI. Mm -hmm. But second of all, the very interesting part of the open source models. Now, there's been being changes from person to person. And open data does have amazing data. Their models are clean. They're easier to use out of the box. And that's why they have the success that they have. Chat GPT, even at the application layer, they're amazingly able to come up with effective solution. And I mean, Chat GPT is the fastest growing product in forever. My understanding is that the open source community right now is maybe what six months to a year. And technology, yeah, like it, it sounds like a sounds like forever. And I think we're far from being a Twitter here or building on top of a YouTube, let's say. 
I like your take on this. You were referring to supplier risk versus a way higher risk, which is product market fit risk, right? And way more costly risk building an entire language model, put it on the market and build an application on top of it that will probably take you years and millions of dollars, right? So I don't even know there's another option. <laughs> so. Yeah, I really like the way you put it. It is about product market fit risk. But if I think of analogies again, we're not in a Twitter API situation over here. Maybe if there was only open AI, maybe. But even then, that's kind of their business model. We're more here in the oligopole market risk where you have essentially like AWS, Google Cloud Platform, and Azure. And maybe you do end up building on a rack space and it sort of migrates out, goes out of business. That's more in the situation. So the risk to me is not too big at this moment. The main risk, I would say, is not for business applications. The main risk, people want to do more applications that are more aligned or tapping into like the depth of human experience. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to do something like AI therapist. For instance, I think there's some safeguards right now, OpenAI's model and Google, that I could see that being an industry-wide issue. So then you would need to, to piggyback see what on mean, so, the open source uh, models. Let's pause, I mean, let's pause a bit and, and talk about GPT and OpenAI for a bit. So, so with the release of uh, GPT-4, OpenAI, OpenAI say that they would not release details of the model creation due to safety concern and the competitive environment. So there are a lot of people from the AI community saying we should all be very concerned about it as it creates a precedent and it's basically OpenAI becoming like a private company or confirming they, they were a private company. I listened to one of also of the father of deep learning, uh, Joshua Benjou, that, that you know, who says, you know, well, it's impressive. ChatGPT is a very small step scientifically and he called it mostly an engineering advance. So ChatGPT is more significant from a social standpoint, he explained. That's making people aware of what can be done with AI. First of all, I mean, I just want to say, well, he's right, obviously. He's the father of deep learning and he's a very smart person. But the thing is that, you know, modes are rarely created by scientific breakthrough. You know, modes are being built with defensibilities such as the scale of your business, the power of your brand. When you have the scale and brand power, you attract more money, you iterate, uh, you do more research and development, and basically you create bigger bots. So I'm concerned personally that ChatGTP can be hard to catch up and you know become a, a monopoly, of course, if it's a private company. So what's your thought on that? Are you concerned? Do you see the open source community, you know, universities catching up and releasing an alternative to OpenAI? And, the next, uh, let's say, three to five years. I mean, a full-on self-hosted alternative can already exist, just at a different level. They're not as good as OpenAI's, but for some things, they're better. OpenAI is very expensive. I wish OpenAI would publish everything, uh, like everyone else. I really would. I think it would seem more coherent with their original vision, and it's a bit difficult to see the, the pivot in their, the way they do things. I do believe, however, that really holds a lot of potential. Yes, it is like a very sophisticated version of autocomplete, mm -hmm. but there's still some emerging properties that this technology comes up with that even makes some age-old linguistic theories such as Chomsky's. I, I'm not a, a subject matter expert. All I know is that some scientific are questioning that because of the emergence or emerging mm -hmm. properties of OpenAI. I'd say that should be 
public. So far, I mean, OpenAI is a first mover to the market, but first off, there's a real possibility that Google catch it up and just like Microsoft, OpenAI, your deal was fun. That was like great, but uh, we've been working on that for so long and actually we've been waiting for this moment to release. And I think the interest is generally there. So I, I could see um, a dynamic in the market such that the open research does benefit from that. I, I don't see this as a zero sum game, I guess, mm-hmm. is what I'm really getting at. Like, yeah, OpenAI will be big. Microsoft will be big. Google will be big. It's, it, it makes no sense to think that they're, they're not going to be big on that either. They're not shipping as, off, uh, as much as they should. But the zero sum, there's no zero sum game. I, we almost created a new market for unstructured data. You know, some good generous friend of mine who are coding extensions to completely code through GPT-4. I've coded applications while listening to a conference in South by Southwest. He went with GPT-4. Wow, I'm like, why is this productive? Even more than that with less. So I'm excited about that. I, this is a different yeah. zero sum game. I agree on that. I, I like your perspective. And we, I think we are all very, very impressed and excited about what we can do with GPT in general. And speaking of which, how do you see the AI in the future helping us? How do you see it transforming the way we work generally, but also for our engineers? That's that, the insight I'm going to put forward is one that really came up out of South by Southwest, which I feel like very aligned with, but essentially AI is less about artificial intelligence than it is about augmented intelligence. Those models, whether they're images or they are about language, they're really about sort of a probability distribution of what's the most likely next token or then you can see them as like a weird da- fuzzy database. So don't ask it for insight. It will help you gain insight. It will accelerate you. I think there we will see more of emerging properties as we get more data on those models. I'm not a science, machine learning scientist, so I don't know as much about will scale of the model continue to like provide breakthrough or is it the data that's going to be the limiting factor? Some people are saying it's mostly the latter, but I do see this as being augmenting ourselves and I use it every day and it really does make my emails better. It makes uh, my thinking better. I mean, I know people have been using it to do preparation for job interviews. You can use it to help brainstorm questions that you'll get asked for, let's say uh, from an investor, from a pitch. So it's really about how you use those tools to be more efficient. It's your own like private intern, as some people at South by Southwest were putting it. And so it's about how much more efficient we're going to be. So I really do see this unlocking of potential as cloud is the gig again, the same exact gain as we've had. The cloud enabled me to start a startup 10 years, 12 years ago, enabled you to start a startup as well. And the fact that you didn't have a server to manage, that was so instrumental. Suddenly you could have like machines and now it's a call away. So I'm excited about yeah. the potential. Me too. You know, I mean, I think that uh, we should not be afraid about it. We should embrace it. And I think that suddenly we're all going to become 10 times more productive, which is crazy if you think about it, right? Yeah. I think that we're going to start seeing a lot, a lot of solo entrepreneur having like a big impact. If you can do 10 times, you don't need 10 or 20 people anymore to start a company or five people. You just need two, three people using, like being completely empowered by and amplified by uh, and augmented, like you said, by ChatGPT. You know, it's, 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 it's just crazy. And I think we're all excited at the end of the day. Yeah. It's just so fast. Yeah. It's just happening so fast. I mean, GPT-4 was released like, I mean, a couple of days ago, uh, ChatGPT was released maybe six months ago. GPT was released like a year before that. Maybe it's, 
if the, 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 the speed at which is, if this is going on and innovations that are like connected to it. And we see, I don't, AGI will see. I don't know just yet, but I'm, I'm really interested. Like this is the second cloud computing. If people mean like think about this one way or key takeaway about the AI, it's your new intern in the form of cloud computing come again. And the same excitement is also, and the, the, the level of excitement is the same now. I'm feeling it too. So to finish uh, this episode, and honestly, I, 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 could, I could talk about it for, for hours with you, but I'd like to spend a bit of time, you know, talking how you got there and, you know, what would be your, your advice for young engineers who may be afraid to launch their own company? Because basically on your side, you had to improve on two things at once, which is from engineer to CTO, managing not just technology and process, but people, and at the same time, becoming an entrepreneur, right? So it's a lot. Uh, what's the best decision you ever made for yourself and how you got there? Well, I think it's really about being curious. It's about being curious, but it's more about like being wise. And by wise, I mean being able to take into account your values, your emotion, your, your hopes, your dreams, and being able to take into account as well, you know, on your rational side of things. I think that's the biggest takeaway to, for those who want to jump in entrepreneurship, I think from the start to the end, it's really about being able to connect with your emotional intelligence and being able to marry it to your rational intelligence. And it starts from when to go into business, right? If you do have an amazing opportunity, you cannot say no to, you and, you know, like I would say, grab it, but it's also about being, I wouldn't say never jump blindly to something. That's how startups die. It's about how good you are at getting what you want. It's also about how happy you are, as defined by how content you are with your choices. And to me, the decision to become an entrepreneur was uh, born a lot by my aversion to regret. And that's something I really share with my, my co-founder. Aversion to regret is a big thing for us. Would we rather look back and have done A rather than B? And yeah, emotional intelligence is so important. So very true, you know, all you engineers with your fancy metrics and your code and your machines. It's not about that. It's about people. And it's about how you communicate with them. And you got to be mindful of that, I think. And that's the most important thing. Oh, yeah. It's very, very true, you know, and, and you said some things that's really true. And I think that, you know, we engineers, I mean, I think that, you know, most of the time we're going to be analytical, smart. Basically, this is what we're doing, right? We are assembling pieces together. So we need to be analytical, smart, but emotional intelligence, that's something else. And even when you start managing people, when you start like leading a company, like you said, you need to connect with, with your emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. Which nobody is going to teach you how, right? No. How, did, yeah. how, did, how did you do it? How did you do it? Did you, did you get, did you have a mentor? Was it, was it Stokes? Was it, was it some, someone else? I've been lucky enough to have good mentors. I have had really good mentors who are really good at helping me hone in on this idea of wisdom. Uh, has defined by being both in your rationality and your emotionality. I've been very blessed with that. I also was very interested in that. At some point, I did realize, like, you know, this is not all about like thinking and making work or the machine. It's about choosing how to talk to people and it's about understanding. It's about empathy. But it is all about that. Even before managing people, first 
decision you're going to make that require you to have a good uh, emotional intelligence is going to be your choice of co-founder. And, you know, one thing that I would say is always prioritize having a co-founder that has a great emotional intelligence because the same thing as a life partner. To some extent, you're going to see them more than your life partner. You know, 40 hours a week is a lot or sometimes 10 years. You need to make sure that this person is able to weather the good and the bad, but also explain the good and the bad and be able to receive the good and the bad, both of you and them. So the best way is to start empathizing them. That, that's where it starts. I think the emotional intelligence about like how do people feel and understanding. But even before that, empathy is about curiosity and mm-hmm. about approaching from a space of like, I might understand a lot, but this person has, a, has their own world. And it's also my job as co-founder or employer or leader to be curious because then let them tell you, you know, who they are, when they think about. Be curious, ask question, listen. I agree. So those are very wise words to conclude this episode <laughs> from, a, from a very wise person. <laughs> Thank you, Gabriel. <laughs> it was a real pleasure to have you here. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening service. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, mission.dev, for more information on our network and platform. See you next episode.